Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Rommel Kuruming, who's the author of Power and Knowledge in Southeast Asia, State and Scholars in Indonesia and the Philippines, which is out from Routledge in 2020. Rommel, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for this opportunity to discuss my book. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I've got to make a full disclosure of interest here. Since 2000, I've been editing a book series called Rethinking Southeast Asia from Routledge, in which 17 fantastic books have appeared so far, <laughs> many of them groundbreaking monographs. And Rommel's is, in fact, the most recent of these books. So I'm obviously a bit of an enthusiast for this particular project. Rommel's Senior Assistant Professor of History and International Studies at the University of Brunei, Jerusalem, where he specializes on the history of island Southeast Asia, and notably that of his native Philippines. But this book is a comparative study based on his Australian National University PhD thesis. So, Rommel, your book has a long title, but it's not one that perhaps immediately signals its primary focus, which is on projects of national history writing. How did you become interested in how previous regimes in both Indonesia and the Philippines enlisted scholars to write new national histories? I became interested in this kind of experience since I was a teacher in high school back in the Philippines. Mm. Mm. And I studied history before then. And it was, even during the time, it was a very political kind of undertaking. So earlier on, I was exposed to how political history is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I already heard about Marcos uh, Tadhana project mm-hmm. earlier. So when I started to be exposed to Indonesia, and I heard about the Sajara National Indonesia, mm-hmm. that, that this regime had this kind of project. So that sparked my interest. How I, I told myself, how about uh, look into these two projects and see what we can see out of these two projects. So that was the genesis of your PhD project, which then became the book. Yes, yes. Okay, so you've already mentioned, as most listeners know, General Suharto assumed the presidency of Indonesia in 1968 and then ushered in the the new order, which was a Cold War era regime based on kind of developmental authoritarianism. And a couple of years later, this national history writing project known as Sejara Nasional Indonesia or SNI was born. So who was behind that initiative and, and how was it carried out? So there's a possibility that the military had a hand in it through the military historian, uh, Nogroho Nutososanto. Yes. But Paul, most scholars in the 1970s believed that it was a community 
project by historians themselves as an offshoot of the national seminar that was held in 1970. Mm-hmm. So from, from their standpoint, it was because they had this organization, an organization of Indonesian historians. And from time to time, they had this national seminar. And at the end of the seminar, that as a historic seminar in 1970, they had this kind of resolution to write a national history. So from their uh, belief, it is a historian's project. But there is a reason to believe that even earlier than that, Nogrojo mm-hmm. Santo, who worked for the military, had a hand making this happen. Yeah. So right from the get-go, the question of whose initiative was it is a difficult one to answer because that turns out to be a matter of some debate and controversy. That's right, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> thereby That's, illustrating uh, thereby illustrating just how political a lot of these questions are. That's right, yeah. So when SNI was published at the end of 1975, what kind of reactions did the new history generate? Actually, initially, there was a lot of excitement about it and some kind of pride among uh, historians, among those who were involved, that it succeeded. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there were two attempts previously made during Socarno's period. Similar idea had been brought up. So when it happened, finally, 1975, and there was this kind of inauguration or ceremony in order to welcome the book mm-hmm. that's early 1976 so everyone was excited about it the press welcomed it and the Nogrojo de Santo was uh, very happy because he apparently he got the credit for doing so but on the other hand some of those teams involved in the project were very disappointed because Nogrojo de Santo somehow railroaded certain volumes that were, in their view, not yet finished. So some kind of a portent of what to come. Mm-hmm. On the surface, it was all happy, but it was just a matter of time when all these kind of controversies uh, began to prop up. Were the books then widely adopted and used across Indonesia? It was supposed to be the case that textbooks would be written based on the Sajara National Indonesia. Right. So some kind of a master text mm-hmm. that textbooks would be based upon. So everyone believed that that was the case, that indeed those that were published quickly, soon after the SNI was published, was in fact just a summary, a simplified version to suit the pedagogical needs. That's also the common belief. But in reality, the textbook was significantly different from the master text, supposedly. Mm-hmm. The textbook that came out in 1976 that was a much more virulent version of the original. That's one thing that I analyzed in the book. Why was this two set of books, particularly if you compare the volume six, the most recent one, mm-hmm. and the content of the textbook, when you compare how they treated the new order era, how, how come they very different? One is really propagandistic. The other one, you'd really doubt if you can say that Sajarnasul Indonesia was really an official kind of history of the new order because it really didn't say much about the new order. So if the idea is to legitimize the new order, you cannot find that in the original. You can hardly find that. Only a little 
it's not really that kind of a propaganda for the new order to le- to legitimize the new order but the textbook was right and this is really the nub of the question for a lot of people i guess for political scientists uh, like me who are not so uh, versed in the nuances of the history itself we tend to be interested in the politics of textbooks and the politics of history books because we have in our minds this question about how far is history being used to legitimate something in the present. So the treatment of the contemporary or the very recent era in these books becomes of central significance. So you're saying that actually in the Indonesian case, there wasn't a very clear treatment of the new order that would allow you to make the argument that it was really about legitimating the regime of the time. It applies to the master text, the Sajjana mm. Indonesia, but it doesn't apply to that case, but it does apply to, to the textbook. Mm-hmm. So the focus of attention of critic few months after it came out, so criticism started to flow in, and the Focus of criticism is the original, the Sejra National Indonesia. But hardly anyone paid attention to the truly virulent propaganda mm. that mm. was the textbook. So all their focus was on the, the original. And it would take another 10 years, almost 10 years. 1985, when the textbook began to be noticed as really problematic. So by the time, much of the focus of criticism has been on the original so when we talk about Sejarah National Indonesia as um, official history, the most fundamental question we need to ask is, which one are you mm-hmm. talking about? Even scholars, Indonesian and foreign scholars, their focus of attention is the Sejarah National Indonesia. Yeah. Because obviously a particular problem for Indonesian history around this juncture is how to describe and examine the events, for example, in October 1965 that led to the end of Sukarno's presidency and the the mass killings that followed. And how do these national history projects treat the birth of the new order and these tumultuous events? Yeah. So the the original text, it it ended soon after, a few days after October 1, Mm -hmm. when, when the killing happened. Yes. And you'd really be surprised if the idea of that book is to legitimize the regime, why it ended just like that. It mm-hmm. just cut off and nothing was said about it. So that gave me, uh, because everyone, when, when I started to, to talk to people and tell them that I would be doing a PhD thesis on Sejarah National Indonesia, practically everyone was telling me, what else do you need to know about Sejarah National Indonesia? You can summarize in one sentence what Indonesian historiography in what Sejarah National Indonesia is all about. Mm-hmm. So initially, I, when I heard that, I felt that it might really be true. I was um, rather hesitant to push through with my original plan initially, but I just comforted myself with the thought that Tadhana project is a very interesting project. So even if it turns out that Sajjana National Indonesia is really such a bore, then I still have one to fall back on. So that, that's the that's a mindset of practically everyone, even my um, supervisor at ANU, but they still let me proceed. So when I read this Sajjana Indonesia for the first time, that critical part, 
when I read it and that it ended just like that with so many of the supposed details supposed to be there, I was expecting that those kind of gory details about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. But when it didn't happen, I say, oh, there must be something in this project that really need to be looked into. So that's when I realized that it is much more interesting than a lot of people thought. Right. So if you're saying in the case of SNI, our perhaps misguided assumption that this must be part of a project to legitimate the new order is a flawed assumption. What's the real logic behind the SNI project? Okay, <laughs> so I think it was, you know, de Sosanto really had a plan to make it as a truly viable official history that will help legitimize the regime. But because even if he was the leader of this project, he was the intermediary between the regime and the historians. Mm-hmm. It was Sartono Cartodergio who had the upper hand, being the most respected historian. So he drew up the concepts, the outlines, and all. It was Nogrohon Sartono had the, this kind of approach to history, the multidimensional approach that goes against Nogroho's preferred approach, which is the narrative, descriptive narrative kind of style. So because Sartono Cartodergio imposed this kind of approach to everyone, that set the limit by which Nogroho's Santos plan was eventually achieved. So one of the reasons why there are so much less details about the story of how the new order came about and what happened after October 1, when the killing happened, it can be explained by the fact that the dominant approach had to conform to what Sartono Cartodergio wanted. So in that sense, the scholarly approach that Sartono Cartodergio imposed set the limit to what Nogrojon Santo wanted to achieve. And that's the reason why, even if the project was still not fully finished, they were already writing the textbook version. So the textbook version is the version that could have been SNI, the volume six, had Nogrojo Santo been given free reign. But because Sartono was the main man in the Sajanasul Indonesia, he was constricted by, by, by that kind of injunctions or that kind of approach imposed by Sartono Cardoderjo. So we see here that kind of a case where a scholarly effort, and actually even Sartono Cardoderjo was not aware of that. When I interviewed him sometime in 2005, mm-hmm. he didn't have an idea. He felt bad about the project. He didn't have an idea that his approach made a difference in so far as constricting whatever political plan Nogroho had. So he had no idea of that. It, it became clear to me only after I analyzed what happened. So what clearly emerges from your book and your analysis of the SNI project is that there's very intense internal contestation between different notions of what this national history should be, very crudely, the idea of legitimation versus other more scholarly-based imperatives about how the story should be told. And what happens is that an acting out of these different 
perspectives that result in a narrative and a history that is more nuanced and complex than most people would assume. Yes, you're right. So both this project, Tadhana International Indonesia, they are both products of effort to intervene in the ongoing contestation for what should be for shaping mm-hmm. hi- national history, what it should be, and how should it be written, what's the major approach that should be employed. So both of these projects are yeah, part of that bigger process. And it's so happened that in the case of Indonesia, the Sartono Cartodarjas idea was the one that prevailed at that particular time. Soon after, Sartono would be kicked out of the project and Nogroho would have freedom to do it. And that will be reflected in the next major revision of the Sajar Nasional Indonesia, uh-huh. 1984 edition. So this 1984 edition is so much closer to the textbook Mm-hmm. than it was to the 1975 edition. So you would see there that by the time, Sartono is no longer at the helm. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's really an iterative project that has different forms at different points in its own history. Yeah. Well, let's turn to, very close to my heart, and I think yours, Tadana, the multi-volume <laughs> history of the Philippines, uh, purportedly authored by President Ferdinand Marcos himself and launched in the wake of his 1972 declaration of martial law. How did that project get off the ground? Okay, so it's interesting to see how Marcos' interest in writing history evolved. Initially, Marcos was interested only as a sponsor of the Commission for Writing and National History. So there was this idea sometime in 1968 that was raised among historians, and they talk about the idea of rewriting Philippine history because they saw a lot of problems in the history, historiography, so they needed something, a a big project to correct this. So during the time, Marcos was interested to be the, he said that he will sponsor the commission, and he sought out the service of two of the most respected historians who, in his mind, should spearhead the project. So, Tidoro Agoncillo and Horacio de la Costa, one is a Jesuit, mm-hmm. the other one is a thoroughly secular from the University of the Philippines, and the other one is from Ateneo de Manila. So these are two of the most brilliant, most respected historians. And he wanted either of them or both of them to spearhead the project. The two did not agree, but they kept on asking them until 1973. This, the last recorded attempt was in 1973. So from 1968 to 1973, they were still trying to woo these scholars. And then this evolved into when they did not agree, and there was this another project being done by the, uh, uh, being funded mm-hmm. by Australian. So yes. you see there, he wanted there to become uh, editor-in-chief of the project. He wanted to get this, uh, to rest the project from the Australian publisher and be the editor-in-chief. When that did not work, and he found finally a group of historians who were scholars willing to do it, and really very good scholars from the University of the Philippines, that is the time when Tadhana as a project came about. So when he saw that there were this group of scholars willing to do this, and when he saw that their idea of a more indigenous-based kind of history, that's precisely what Marcos wanted. It fits into 
the political design. But the scholars didn't have an idea of that because the scholars who made the initial frame and outlines of this, these are scholars who were keen to really promote indigenous kind of history. So this is the kind of history that they believe could address the, the supremacy of the Western approaches to history. And they thought that by doing a more indigenous kind of history that could solve a lot of problems in the country. So you see here the merging of two separate interests. And that's how the Tadhana started. Right. Yes, yeah, clearly a, a confluence of agendas, trends that were already taking place within the community of historians in the Philippines and, and to some extent globally, and then Marcos's own idea. What's puzzling, though, is he, he threw a lot of resources at the project, didn't he, and took over the whole top floor, as you describe, of the National Library for these scholars to go and spend every day writing and working away on this project. But it wasn't really finished, and it it might even be better known in some respects outside the Philippines and inside. Why was the the Tadana project so, I don't know whether unsuccessful yeah. is the word, but it didn't really pull it off despite the fact that it had the backing of the most powerful man in the country. It, it doesn't seem to have panned out in the way that it was supposed to. Why was that? That's right. Yeah. So unlike Sejarasul Indonesia that was completed in four, three, four years, mm-hmm. the Dana project, despite all the resources, did not really get finished. And the main reason for that has to do with, by 1980, Marcos started to get sick. By that time, the drafts of the volumes have already been submitted. So the problem is, Marcos trusted only one person to do the <laughs> copy editing. Right. So that's the thing. That's the person that he, uh, yeah, the style he likes. So that person so happened to have all these kind of multiple responsibilities. And so that plus Marcos was getting sick. So between 1980 and 1986, only one or two volumes really came out. 1980 and then 1982. Yeah, after 1980, only one. That's the abridged, Mm -hmm. first volume of the abridged version. But the drafts have have already been submitted. And that's the reason why the second volume of the abridged, by the time that, by, by early 1980s, they realized that the progress was too slow. So Marcos, they say that, okay, we focus on the abridged versions. The first one came out in 1982. And the second one was about to come out by 1986, it was already on Gali proof, but mm-hmm. it's a revolution happened. The project was wiped out after that. Yeah, that's one of the most intriguing nuggets that comes out of the book, the, the mystery of what happens to that lost volume. It's like the Yamashita gold, you know, it's vanished. Right. You've never yeah. been able to figure out where this, this volume is, right? They recently, more recently, mm. became clear where it is. It yes. is... Uh, I heard that it is with the Marcoses. Ah. Yeah. The second volume is with the Marcoses. So I mean Marcos, I heard uh, yeah. It's it's part of the collection. Ah. 
And I'm wondering uh, when will this second volume be allowed to be accessed by people? Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's an intriguing question. Yeah. But perhaps you could say something because this is one of the most interesting aspects of your book, really, and it's a, a topic that you and I have talked about before, and it's one that I'm deeply intrigued by. What about the moral, professional, and political dilemmas of the scholars, many of whom were newly minted American PhD holders who got enlisted to take part in the Tadana project? What were their motivations? Why would you want to serve as a ghostwriter for a, a president who's become controversial and ultimately in the final years becomes totally beleaguered and, and pushed out? Why, why okay. were scholars getting involved with this kind of project when their name's not even going to be on the cover of the book? That's right, yeah. Okay, so apparently for most of them, there was not really that kind of moral dilemma. Their main concern is the that kind of what will serve their scholarly interests. The likes, for example, of Salazar, mm -hmm. he saw in this project an opportunity to really go to the archives overseas. And also uh, Samuel Tan, for example, another main, the main prime movers of the project. They're more concerned about being able to write history in the way that they like it to happen. Mm -hmm. So that kind of breaking all these kind of grounds for a new kind of history. And anyone, I particularly like what Salazar said, that whoever, it may be a criminal who would give all this kind of, so long as that, we, that person will provide resources that will allow him to write the kind of history he likes, he will do it. He, he had not much of that kind of moral questions about this kind of thing. This becomes, they had in mind their interest as historians, but of course, other people didn't think it that way. So mm -hmm. other people in the community, particularly those groups who are anti-Marcos, the University of Philippines, they really then did not like the idea. And as we know, so even up to now, they are vilified by these people and they remain yeah, the worst of this bunch of scholars. How could they have sold their soul mm -hmm. to Marcos? Mm -hmm. so that kind of idea. But in my analysis of the book, I, I went beyond that. I, right. I tried to take a, another view. Right. One of those great strengths of the book is that you really try to enter into the imaginative world and empathize with the people who took part in the projects and try to see it from their point of view. Obviously, what's interesting about your book is the access that you had to some of these key informants. And a lot of historians don't do a great deal by way of interviewing, but this project does to some degree hinge on interviews both with the Indonesian and uh, Philippine scholars who are involved in the projects. How easy was it to find the opportunity to talk to these people about things that in many cases they had never spoken about in public? Uh, these were both projects that were uh, surrounded by swirls of rumors and confusion and misinformation and denials and so forth. How were you able to, to penetrate some of those mysteries for the purposes of this book? Oh, I'm glad you asked this question because it was really one of the most difficult aspects of the project. Mm -hmm. At some point, yeah, I remember I encountered this kind of crisis there at, at the middle of my data gathering because the one of the main person in the project, the, the one who, who led the project because he, mm -hmm. he had the National Library, he had prostate cancer. 
Yes. So by the time that I really needed to talk to him, he couldn't do that because he had to fly to the United States. So he had to leave the country and he didn't know when he would be able to come back, if at mm-hmm. all he would come back. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that kind of situation where your project hinges on a particular individual. If I didn't manage to talk to him, a, a lot of things would have yeah, it made a lot of difference. So it's a very difficult. There are a lot of things that I couldn't control in these interviews because, for one, they are not really very keen to talk about what happened during the time. No. Yeah. So they they are hesitant to talk about it. But somebody like Salazar was, <laughs> yeah, he was not hesitant to talk about it. That's one yes. thing that I really was happy about him. He. He accommodated my request. Mm-hmm. Not just accommodated my request, but he was very generous of his time. Yeah. So even if there is a need for me to do another round of interview because to need to clarify things, he was there. Even if he was yeah, having yeah, because he's already very old and but he's still very very lucid. The same thing with Sartono Cardoderjo. When I interviewed him, he was already uh, advanced stage of uh, being blind. And, but still very lucid. He was happy to be interviewed for the project. Those scholars from the University of Indonesia, they are the ones who are hesitant to talk about this. Those in Gajamada University, they had no qualms about talking about their participation in the project. But those in University of Indonesia, they are the ones because the young scholars, young historians who are working for the military, they all these are protege of uh, Nogrohon Santo, and they're mm-hmm. all from University of Indonesia. So that's the trickier part there. In the case of the Philippines, the contentious issues surrounding the project made the people rather hesitant to talk. But eventually, people that I needed to talk to, I, I managed to talk to. So I am I'm happy with that. After several months, after six months, Kiason, that kind of guy from the National Library, he eventually got well and he came back. Mm-hmm. And that is the time that I, I managed to talk to him. But until such such point, I was really very nervous about the prospect Oh, yeah, the kind of data I would manage to generate. Yeah. And because a little bit of time for various reasons elapsed between your finishing the PhD and us getting the, the book out in the series, it's now quite a while ago that you talked to these people, isn't it? It's more than 15 years ago, so it would be quite difficult to go back and reconstruct some of this data That's gathering right. now. That's right. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Yes. And of, and also, some of them have passed away since then. Indeed. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sartono, for example, Sartono Cartoderjo uh, passed on two years after I interviewed him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So your research is itself becoming a piece of history, too. <laughs> that's right. That, yeah. that's, that's the nature of good historical work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So the, do you have some sense of what you've got in store for us next, Rommel? Are you working on a, a second book or another big project at the moment? Yeah, I'm working on another book, and this will provide that kind of illustration of how how cartography of knowledge might be done. Mm. Yes. So that kind of specific examples of how this might be done. That's the idea. And does that book have a particular national or geographical focus? Uh, the cases I'll be discussing there is coming from the cases of Indonesia, Malaysia, and Philippines. Yeah. Right. 
That's, Great. Uh, so we look forward very much to that. I hope I'll be able to yeah, really sit down and get it done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we would we would love to hear from you again once that uh, that next project is completed. Thank you. Fantastic to have you you back on the New Books Network. So thanks, Robert, for joining me today to talk about your new book, Power and Knowledge in Southeast Asia. It's my pleasure, Professor Duncan. Yeah, I really appreciate your inviting me to have this kind of conversation. It's um, yeah, it's not easy to explain my book to a lot of people. It's it's a very important book. It's a complicated <laughs> argument. It's based on Thank years you. of research. So yeah. we, the most important thing is we encourage our listeners to go and read it for themselves, and then uh, they they will see how they can engage with the the many arguments that can be found there. So I'm Duncan Macargo, uh, director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. I've been talking to Rommel Kuruming, who's the author of Power and Knowledge in Southeast Asia: State and Scholars in Indonesia and the Philippines which is a book that expands and yet problematizes our understandings of state-sponsored national history writing projects under both Suharto and Marcos. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network Southeast Asia channel.